half the reason that people can't be uh, or struggle to be healthy is that we're telling them the wrong message we're telling them that they need to be thin you know that that message that you need to look a certain way you need to look like the girl or the, the guy in magazines is is really directed to and for people who have a lot of social educational and economic privilege to be able to afford all these fancy things that that these people tell you health entails g'day and welcome to the good life Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Nikki Stamp fixes broken hearts, by which I mean that she's a cardiothoracic surgeon. She also mentors, publishes, makes television programs, and appears frequently in the media to talk about feminism and healthy living. Nikki's books are Can You Die of a Broken Heart? and Pretty Unhealthy, why our obsession with looking healthy is making us sick. Nikki, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So what got you originally interested in, uh, in surgery? Can you trace it back to, uh, <laughs> to a specific moment in your, uh, in your childhood when you came to think that uh, perhaps uh, slicing people open for a living might be what you wanted to do? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I was definitely, uh, definitely interested as a child. I was a bit of a strange kid. Um, I, when I was growing up, uh, Victor Chang was very prominent in the media at the time. He was working on um, creating the... Sort of, a durable mechanical heart as a replacement for heart transplants and so because of that he was you know constantly featured featured on the news and I used to see him and think oh my god that is amazing I really 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 want to do that so I'd written you know I think I was in year three so I was about eight years old I'd written you know when I grow up um, I want to be a heart surgeon and finish the work of Victor Chang and um, so I was a fairly precocious child and, and then I, I just sort of got really stuck into it even as a kid I, I read everything I possibly could about the human body and how it worked you know, so much so to the point that the school librarian actually um, had to call my mum and tell me that I wasn't reading age-appropriate books and my mum's my mum's not one to take things like that lying down so she told the librarian that <laughs> that you know who cares she's reading like you know let her read what she wants um and uh, I so that that was what uh, that was the the sort of origin of it but I I kind of got sidetracked as a teenager as I think a lot of teenagers do you know it's it's a tough tough That's time the definition of teenagerhood right getting right yeah yeah like I just you know I didn't I didn't think I was smart enough and I didn't really enjoy the academic side of school and I sort of toyed with a whole bunch of other career choices and I thought about journalism I thought about law um, I thought about uh, languages you know doing linguistics or being a translator I, I try I, I went through pretty much everything but what I really wanted to do when I was in high school was to study musical theatre because I, I love music I love um, performing and and uh, that was what I was 
definitely headed towards. So this is Whopper you were looking at at that stage? I, I was looking at Whopper on Ida, yeah. Um, yep. And my, my dad's a, an engineer, so he's very sensible. Uh, and uh, he sort of said to me, uh, no, <laughs> you have to get a real degree first. I think he rightly had uh, concerns that he was going to be supporting a starving actor for the rest of his life. So um, I, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go do accounting. And I was pretty good at it um, and I thought that, you know, that's three or four years and then I can do that and then go on to greater things in Whopper or NIDA. <laughs> um, but as it sort of got close to year 12 or toward the end of year 12 actually, and I, after TE, which is, you know, the um, HSC equivalent over here at the mm. time, it's, I have no idea what it is now, it's changed so much. <laughs> and um, I, I sort of got after that and I thought I, I actually don't want to be an accountant. That's not really my cup of tea uh, and I had no idea then what I was going to do so I was going through all the you know the university brochures looking for ideas and I kept seeing things like science things like medicine or you know health sciences I thought oh that that would be really cool um, but I didn't think I had the marks I didn't think I was smart enough I didn't think I'd done the right subjects and I was getting really distressed about this I thought I'd just completely ruined my chances you know my parents had you know given me the best education they could and I'd kind of blown it so my dad took away all those brochures and he said to me if you could do anything in the world you know anything at all no matter the marks or the subjects or whatever what would you do and really strangely I said I'd want to be a doctor I didn't even didn't skip a beat and mm. uh, I was really upset cause as I said I thought I'd ruined my chance but uh, I'm I'm fairly stubborn <laughs> and I, I decided to work out how to how to get into medicine not having done all the exams and all the rest of it you had to do so I um, applied for science at UWA and I started studying science I was going to be a double major in anatomy and human movement just like exercise physiology uh, but I got uh, I did really well in the first year I'd gone from you know not thinking I was not smart enough to study maths or physics or chemistry to studying you know university level maths physics and chemistry uh, and I did really well and I loved it and I got into medicine and never looked back and I was always 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 going to be a surgeon there's just no two ways about it um, I was really single-minded uh, and and I love it I, I still love it so it was a bit of a convoluted pathway but uh, I got there in the end <laughs> I think a lot of people are turned off surgery just because of the uh, the blood. I mean, when I've been uh, in watch, watching surgery, uh, mm -hmm. my uh, my instinct is to stand up against the wall so that if I faint, then I'm not going to get in the way of the surgical team. <laughs> That's very uh, smart. But what is it? Uh, presumably, your your love of surgery isn't just the reverse of uh, of, of the aversion that most of us have to blood. <laughs> it's, it's not that you have some sort of uh, Dracula kind of instinct. What is it you love about what you do? Oh, um, yeah, well, I guess, I, yeah, blood doesn't bother me. It doesn't doesn't make me feel anything, um, actually, which is a bit weird. Um, so you're right, I'm not obsessed with it in the opposite way that you might be. But I, I think for me, I, I, love, I love human anatomy. I think the way that we're put together is just so fascinating and everything has a purpose and a reason. And, you know, if it was designed by someone, you know, whatever your thoughts and feelings are on how we all came to be, however we have arrived at our current form is like, it's just fascinating to me. I think it's amazing. Um, I love I love the idea that when someone has a problem, whether that be you know say a cancer or a blockage or they have pain, that they have an operation 
and that problem is then by and large removed it's gone um, and I, I like that sort of immediacy being able to immediately affect someone's well-being and I love working in a team and you know I think unlike well it's not unlike the rest of the hospital I think that particularly in cardiac surgery our our team is is massive for one thing um and we're so it was so dependent on one another it takes all of us to do our job well um to give that patient a good outcome and and that's a pretty special environment to be in yeah i mean there's so many things that fascinate me about surgery and uh, that the immediacy of the outcome i think Mm -hmm. is one really striking thing so different from the sort of preventive health issues where you've done a lot of public advocacy where Mm -hmm. you don't go to the gym one day and suddenly transform your uh, your health the next (laughs) it's uh, uh, dieting exercise all those sorts of things are are steady incremental changes in contrast to to what you do in your uh, your daily life which is just that uh, that immediate uh, immediate payoff yeah uh, but surgery presumably also has uh some pretty tough uh ups and downs as as well and and you must have uh faced the challenge of having to tell uh, tell people that surgeries didn't go well or you know in the worst case to to tell family members that that somebody didn't make it uh, mm-hmm. how do you deal with that side of things oh that that never gets any easier uh, you're right it's, it's a reality of, of most doctors jobs um and in my field you know we are literally dealing with life and death and so for me compared to say some of my colleagues those conversations you know are more common for me to have to have to have with someone um so you know I I don't think it gets any easier with practice and I don't think you stop I don't think you stop feeling for those people and you know knowing that that a bad day is you know for me is is you know infinitely harder for those people who are on the receiving end of that um, so it's it's incredibly you know incredibly challenging. I think though I've always thought about this. I actually don't want it to get any easier. I don't want to be able to walk into a room, deliver some bad news, and then walk out like nothing's happened because I think that would be the day I need to stop <laughs> stop working because it's I've lost my I've lost my humanity then. Um, but then the flip side of that is you know the highs are you know they're just spectacular um you know just recently you know two of my former patients who i you know stay in touch with um both of whom had transplants just celebrated that their transplant anniversaries and you know neither of them were expected to live (laughs) and they are and they're not just you know they're not just sort of surviving and you know day-to-day drudgery they're they're out there you know contributing they're out there you know enjoying themselves they're you know staying with their families and experiencing all the good things that we want those people to do and and you know that's that's the contrast and and that's why that's why we we do it I think you know that that ability to to really change someone's life like that is is you just can't you can't replace that you can't replicate it and you know sometimes it's completely indescribable it's pretty special yeah (laughs) i mean your your occupation is interesting in other ways too Uh, there's the old joke about uh, the cafeteria in heaven in which everyone's patiently queuing for their food and suddenly (laughs) a guy in the white white coat comes charging through uh, pushes everyone out of the way someone says who's that and uh, and someone else replies oh that's god he thinks he's a surgeon. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a variation of theme. Um, what's the difference between God and a cardiothoracic surgeon? Is that God doesn't think he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. 
<laughs> so, I mean, this is a, a weird problem to have. Most uh, most people in most occupations don't worry that they have too much status. But um, mm -hmm. I do remember talking to uh, another surgeon uh, about the problem of, uh, in his case, he was talking about informed consent, that, mm. uh, that he, he wants, to, wants patients to go away and have a conversation with the nurse because he's too worried that every time he talks to them, they'll just say yes because mm. he's the surgeon. Mm. Uh, how do you deal with being in a profession where uh, you really do have quite an exalted status, you know, not just as a doctor, but as a uh, you know, doctor among doctors? Mm, I think that's a really good question because it, it is, it, it's a really unusual thing, you know, uh, that's not lost on me that when you ask somebody um, for consent to do an operation, you, you know, someone, people always make a joke, you know, when you ask them to sign the consent form, they say, oh, I'll just sign my life away. And I'm going, please don't say that. <laughs> really rather you didn't. <laughs> we're not doing, no, we're not, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> but it, it is, um, I think that that, that example of, of that, that surgeon understanding the gravity of what we do is actually the key to, to, to that, maintaining mm. some humility and understanding that what's normal for me, you know, what's my day-to-day, -day, it's boring, in and out, you know, technical aspect of things is someone's biggest day of their life. Um, and you need to appreciate that. You need to, to think about that person's point of view um, and realise, that, that, like I say, the gravity of what we're doing. Because as soon as you start to think of it as, as you know, just routine or just, you know, another day at the office, you know, although those moments do come, um, that you kind of lose touch with the reality of what, what that means for that person who is, is actually trusting you with their lives. Um, and, you know, as soon as you start to lose your humanity, as I said, you know, like with Breaking Bad News, as soon as you lose your humanity, it's time, it's either time to retire or have a, at least have a holiday. <laughs> Which TV show best portrays surgeons? Oh, that's easy, Scrubs. Scrubs is the most – I know people think it's weird when I say this, but Scrubs is the most accurate medical show because I think it shows the fallibility of hospitals and of the people who work in them and some of the realities. It shows the good and the bad and, you know, it's hilarious. So <laughs> it's a win-win. <laughs> Um, you've done a lot within uh, the uh, the surgical field to uh, to talk about uh, the uh, role models that women can play. I, I understand there's 13 uh, uh, female heart lung surgeons in Australia at the moment, which is mm -hmm. a frighteningly small number. Mm. Uh, and uh, and you were part of the uh, I look like a surgeon uh, hashtag movement mm. uh, mm -hmm. some some years back, which I understand led to uh, to a, a spate of young girls writing letters to you talking about how they wanted to follow in your footsteps when they grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how have you gone about uh, working as a, as a role model for women in, in a male-dominated field? Yeah, so I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a really small number of, of, you know, not just in cardiothoracic surgery, in surgery across the board. And, you know, we, we know that we lose outstanding female talent at every every step of the way in in medicine in the stem pipeline as well um and particularly in surgery you know we in australia only i think about 12 to 13 percent of 
consultant surgeons are female. And that's just woeful considering we've had, you know, at least half of our medical school graduates female for probably a good couple of decades now. So, you know, the, the everyone's saying, oh, we just, you know, it'll level out eventually. Is it, That's not accurate. Um, so I think it's, it's very important that we do have visible role models uh, for for surgeon for surgery for for stem for all of these things not just to encourage people into that pathway but you know some of the the more frequently reported um, times that a lot of my colleagues say and it's been certainly been reported in the medical literature as well that you know a lot of uh, patients don't you know necessarily think that you know women are surgeons um, you know I've certainly had a few patients you know not wish to have me as their surgeon um, and they they have strangely just no qualms in saying oh no I don't want the woman surgeon I want the man who knows what he's doing and you think what <laughs> what do you do in a situation like that that just sounds frankly bizarre nothing I mean like you, I, I, you know if that's going to make them feel better you know by all means go for it you know I'm not you know that's not the time for me to to jump up or down and you know um, make a scene when that you know that desperate to avoid me um, but you know I think it's a good example of, of things that my male colleagues are probably not well they've never faced really um, so I think it, it, having that visible those visible role models is really important we do know that for women in medicine you know medical student level up that uh, the lack of visible role models in surgery is a, a, a real factor in why they choose not to pursue a surgical career even if they have it so when I was when I was a, a baby doctor when I was a medical student and a junior doctor you know the, there was like just a handful of female surgeons in the hospital you know Fiona Wood um, was one of them you know my, my locker was next to Fiona uh, for years and I thought it was the best thing ever absolutely. <laughs> and she's an absolutely wonderful woman very very lovely and you know always have a chat and you know ask how things were going and um, you know but that was pretty much the only role models we really had back then uh, and and now things have changed and you know it's, it's because of people like Fiona that we we knew that we could do it so I, I understand I understand how important important that is because it was important for me. Uh, what do you say when you're uh, speaking at uh, for example a girls school or also when you're uh, doing mentoring with uh, with younger female surgeons? Yeah, I think the most important thing that I tell all of those people is that you know this applies whatever you whatever you are um, is that your your gender has has no bearing on whether or not you can do a job. Um, and anyone who tells you otherwise, they're not being truthful with you. And that's that's really what they need to know. Um, you know that that's that's the seed that needs to be sown. The other things you know about whether or not um, this career is right for them for their lifestyle, whether it's right for them for their um, their plans about you know family or their what their spouse wants to do or you know all, all these other factors that come into play that's that's the next step the first step is knowing that you can do it um, no no matter what and those other things are almost like logistical decisions to be made they come after but they need to know from the start that there's there's no reason why they can't do this or any job for that matter I want to uh, delve into your uh, your medical expertise. Your mm. uh, first book uh, was titled "Can You Die of a Broken Heart?" Uh, so. I have to ask the question, can you? <laughs> that is a million dollar question. Um, sort of. It, it's it's complicated and layered. Uh, so when we are broken hearted, whatever it be, you know, you might have, uh, your team might have lost the footy grand final or, um, or you know, you've had a, had a relationship breakdown or whatever it is. 
Um, there is a very, very strong link between your emotions and your your physical health and well-being. So when, when you have a tough time, your body perceives that as a threat and it starts off this cascade of usually hormones and nerve signals to tell your body to prepare for, for a threat. Uh, so your heart rate will increase, your blood pressure will increase, your blood gets a bit stickier, your immune system kind of goes out to lunch, um, all, all these stress hormones get released and... and Generally, it's it's not that great for our physical health. However, it's temporary. Uh, and for the most part, if we are brokenhearted, no matter the problem, then we will be fine, um, even though it feels terrible at the time. Um, but there are a select group of people who have an emotional stressor, whatever it is, and they don't do so well. Um, so the first group that we sort of see that in is generally in older people. Mm. Um, so this has been actually quite well studied after the death of a spouse. And, you know, we see those stories in the news sometimes that one partner passed away and the other one passed away not long afterwards. Um, so those sort of physical changes that we all get with an emotional upheaval tend can unmask or, or make underlying medical conditions a bit worse and that can then lead to them, them passing away. And that stress level persists for about 30 days after, after that terrible event. Um, we also do say in, you know, not in elderly people, but anyone with a, an underlying medical condition for the same reasons. One of the most interesting stats I read <laughs> about this was that if you have underlying heart disease and you're watching the um, football grand final, it was referring to um, World Cup soccer, uh, and your team is losing, you are four times as likely to have a heart attack. And I thought that's <laughs> that's fascinating, isn't it? Don't, isn't watching soccer is bad for it's you. It's a great study. Yes. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but then there's this other very unusual usual very uncommon group where they have something called broken heart syndrome um, and its official name is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy and the reason it's got that name is it was first described by Japanese doctors because it looks like a Japanese fisher pot which is called a Takotsubo hmm. um, and it was it's generally occurs in postmenopausal women um, and they most of the time have a, a traumatic emotional event like the the death of a family member and when that happens, they get such a massive surge of stress hormones, including adrenaline, that that adrenaline directly damages the heart muscle and stops it beating so as well as it should. Um, and they can present looking like they're having a heart attack, but when we look at their heart arteries, they're actually completely normal. But we see this really funny-shaped heart and it's got that takotsubo appearance so that's what we that's what we call it um and a lot of people think that because it predominantly occurs in women that it's because they're you know they're so emotional and <laughs> um you know over, over you know overreacting to something but it's it's actually not that at all we don't really know specifically what causes it um it may be that there's some uh effects related to female sex hormones like estrogen um it may be that their their hearts for some reason are uh, extra sensitive to the effects of adrenaline. Um, there's a whole bunch of unanswered questions, but that those people uh, would theoretically possibly be able to be dying from a broken heart. So, for the most of us, though, we're not going to fall into those latter two categories. We're going to fall into that first category of feeling kind of ordinary and um, then recovering, and everything will be fine. It is astonishing that some people have enough adrenaline in their systems to give themselves a fatal dose. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, this, this is the sort of thing I, I think, you know, it's a terrible thing, obviously, but I, I read these sorts of things. I think, God, that is the human body is just so fascinating. It's so unreal. Yes. <laughs> 
Uh, you've talked uh, about the importance of depression as a, a standalone risk factor for, mm. uh, for heart disease. Um, what's the pathway through which that works? How does uh, the num number of friends we have and our social interactions affect mm. our physical health? Yeah, so depression, well, mental illness um, in general is, is really interesting in, in the way it affects our body. We tend, tend to be talking about um, depression by and large because that's the best researched area in this in this field um, but also anxiety potentially can can cause some issues so there's kind of two two pathways to which depression specifically can cause problems with 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 our hearts so the first is is a is a physical cause that it that it it kind of unmasks so it can cause all those stress stress events um, like you know changes in our blood pressure and our heart rate for example um, those sorts of things can can sort of unmask or, or promote you know heart disease it may change uh, inflammation levels in our body it may change how our blood flows it you know can impact on our sleep and we know sleep is incredibly important for our physical health so there's that direct physical link um, but there's also the emotional side of things so perhaps with with a with a mental illness with depression for example you know people might um, might not be exercising um, because their mood and uh, is so low and they, they lack that motivation that that is very characteristic of depression. Um, they might um, be self-medicating with you know, drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. Um, their diet might not be as good. Um, that there's that sort of other social side of things. Um, but then it, it does have a bi-directional relationship. So actually having a ser any serious illness, but we do know this with, with um, having a heart attack, can certainly precipitate depression. Um, and for those people who develop depression um, after a heart attack or, or any kind of cardiac issue, um, they tend to have worse outcomes over the longer term than people who don't. So it, I think it's a really fascinating example of how interconnected our, our bodies and minds really are. How do you set about uh, looking after your mental well-being in an extraordinarily stressful environment? Uh, how do you how do you wind down at the end of the day, and how do you uh, not allow the uh, the stress of the job to get you down? Um, it, no, I'm not always good at it. I'll, I'll start with that disclaimer. <laughs> None of us uh, are. No, no, no. But uh, I, you know, I, there's these times where I think oh, I should probably know better. But I, um, I do, um, I do try to be a little bit more mindful about my own well-being. I certainly slowly learning to be better at this as I get older <laughs> but I, um, I I know that for me one of the most important things for my own physical and mental well-being is exercise and as soon as that starts to drop out of my routine my mental health really takes a hit my physical health really takes a hit so for me exercise prioritizing it doing something that I enjoy doing it with friends um, is is absolutely central to my well-being what sort of exercise do you do i'm a crossfitter nowadays um oh, good. <laughs> yes i like, like lifting heavy things and i really like that i actually really like the social aspect of it you know i have my friends at the gym and you know it's it's such a great environment um yeah. also i'm also a runner and a swimmer you know being a perth girl i have to be near the water in some way <laughs> um it's sort of compulsory if you're if you're from here but um yeah th that's 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 really central to me but I, I also have a really good support system i'm very very lucky to have that and you know my friends my family I I certainly have 
that ability to have a soft landing when when things aren't going so well um and that's that's been really really important to me um to to be able to to know that i've got people in my corner people i can talk to people i can debrief with people who will support me you know no matter what um is is really central to to knowing that i will recover from a bad day or a bad week or you know a bad year at the moment isn't it so um to know that there's that support there is really important and surgery is notorious for uh, long hours and little sleep. How, are you, uh, do you have sort of routines around sleep? Are you, are you sort of very deliberate about uh, ensuring you get a lot, of, a lot of sleep? Do you nap? How do you manage that? Uh, so I, I'm a chronically bad sleeper, which ironically works really well for surgery because it means that I've spent my whole life being awake for a long time. <laughs> so when, <laughs> so when, when, you know, when it's the middle of the night, I'm like, that's fine. I'd be awake anyway. I'm good with that. <laughs> Um, but you know, that being said, I, I'm, I do try to make sure I get, get good amount of sleep and, you know, um, prioritize it. You know, I'm, I, I don't make any, any apologies for, you know, having a nap on the weekend if I need it or, you know, making sure that I'm, I'm, you know, prioritizing that by perhaps not going out as late or whatnot, you know, it's important to me. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, I don't, this is not my area of expertise, but I believe that, you know, as a population, sleep is just so bad at the moment. You know, we're, we're distracted, we're anxious, um, you know, we have 10,000 devices going off, all these kinds of things. Um, and I think probably down the track, we might start to see, or maybe we're already seeing some of the consequences of, of poor sleep. You talk in your new book, uh, Pretty Unhealthy, about uh, the distinction that we need to start making in the, in the community between looking slim and being healthy. Uh, tell us about your wake-up call on that issue. Yes, I've had a lot of, a lot of times in my life um, where I've certainly thought about this, uh, this sort of factor that, that we are, as a society, just so obsessed with looking healthy and by and large, that means looking slim. Um, you know, where we've got a you know multi-billion-dollar worldwide multi-billion-dollar industry uh, of, of fitness and health and wellness and all this kind of thing. That that's what they tell us that we need to to look a certain way in order to be considered healthy. And certainly for me, you know, I've thought about these things as I read articles or I see magazines or TV shows or social media posts. I'm like, that that actually, that doesn't track, that doesn't follow. Your appearance has nothing to do with how healthy you are or are not. Um, but for me, it started to, mm. it was a bit of a wake-up call. When I was a medical student, I was, you know, I've always been really active, like very into sport and not always good at it but always into sport um and exercise i come from a really active family i live in you know the most outdoorsy city around so i'm used to being outside and being active so i but i started um i started training for a bodybuilding competition when i was a medical student um, and i kind of got really sucked into the the mentality and the teachings that come with that um, about, you know, really just flogging yourself, you know, eating, you know, they say eating well. I, as a medical professional, would call that eating poorly, um, you know, having a lot of rules around food and what you should and shouldn't do and 
you know, I, I did that to the point where I was I was actually making myself sick. My bones were thinned. Um, I fractured my wrist and the doctor said to me, look, your, your bones are too thin <laughs> for a woman of your age, you know, a healthy woman in, in her 20s. Um, so I, I sort of started to think this, this is actually not good for me. Um, and I, as I've sort of gotten older and uh, I was hopefully a bit wiser, but, you know, started to think about these things a little bit more, I realised that, you know, half the reason that people can't be or struggle to be healthy is that we're telling them the wrong message we're telling them that they need to be thin um and and that that message is also incredibly privileged you know that that message that you need to look a certain way you need to look like the girl or the the guy in magazines is is really directed to and for people who have a lot of social educational and economic privilege to be able to afford all these fancy things that that these people tell you health entails and the reality is, is it's so far removed from that ideal you know that what that what these people sell is is almost an outright lie you've written too about the uh, the, the flip side to uh, eat whatever you feel like uh, which is the sort of uh, diets that lead people to absolutely obsess over everything that they put in their mouths. Mm. Uh, how do how do people go off the rails in in that opposite direction? So, I mean, I think what we're talking about is orthorexia, and so orthorexia is it's not officially classified as an eating disorder at the moment. It may well be in the future, but orthorexia refers to basically being too healthy. Um, it's about being too uh, obsessed with what you eat and um, you know, exercise to a point where it starts to impact how you function in life. Um, so, what you know, really interestingly, uh, I don't know if it's interesting or, or something else, but when I was writing the second book, I found a a health program that encouraged people to take a set of kitchen scales to a restaurant so that they could weigh their food when they were out eating. That sounds a great idea. I can't oh. see anything weird about turning up to a restaurant with your own set of kitchen scales. Large table, please, because yeah. we need space for the scales. What do you say? I mean, if I was working in that restaurant, I'd be like, God, what's, you know, but, you know, socially as well, if one of my friends or family members sat down with some scales, I'd sort of think, this is, this is not okay. Um, and, and it's not. <laughs> because it does, it, it does get to a point where it starts to impact your functioning, where all you think about all day is food and if it's right or wrong and, and and, you know, um, whether or not um, you should or shouldn't have that and just be being obsessional over it. Um, and certainly, you know, we are thinking that there is an increase in the number of people, um, and it's very prevalent in women, but we certainly start to see it more in men, uh, who are, are taking it too far. Um, and this this does lead to, to a whole bunch of problems. It can lead to physical health problems because that obsession or that pressure to... to to adhere to those these kinds of rules around diet and exercise and appearance can actually backfire and be uh, you know a demotivating force for engaging in things like uh, physical activity or or healthy eating. Um, you know they can um, they can certainly lead to, to mental uh, mental health issues. Um, you know disordered eating, which is when you don't quite meet the criteria for an eating disorder. In people who are vulnerable, that kind of thinking may may contribute to the development of an eating disorder. You know, and I have to say eating disorders are incredibly complicated, um, very specialised. Um, 
you know, illnesses um, and it's going on a diet doesn't inevitably lead to that. But, it, you know, it does, it does sort of raise the questions about the messages that we've been, that we've been given over many, many years um, about, about what health is. Um, and, and, you know, it's probably time to, to think about those messages is that, that they're not benign. They, they come with baggage, they come with side effects and they potentially come with risk. So one of my favourite bits of research around this is when uh, I think it was the New York Times went back and looked at the biggest, biggest loser uh, mm. and they tracked contestants and uh, saw uh, the, what weight they'd put on a decade later and, and most contestants had put it all back on. Right. Uh, so, you know, that seems to go with the, the standard sort of research, which is that most diets seem to have very little impact on uh, fat percentage in the long term. Yeah, that's right. Commercial diets, you know, about uh, nine. 95% of people who are on a commercial diet will, if they lose weight, will regain it. Um, now, that, that's not to say that people shouldn't try and improve their eating. I think that, you know, we all, I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that nutrition is really important for your health and well-being. Um, but I, I think that, you know, relying on companies who, you know, swing with whichever, whichever way the, the latest fads are going, they don't necessarily provide you with um, the support um, and the knowledge and skills that you need to, to make those changes. They certainly don't allow for the, you know, social determinants of health, which are really, you know, really important factor in determining mm. whether or not you're healthy um that those those sorts of things are not they're never going to be included in a, a commercial diet and we should really as i say we should really start looking at these things with a bit more uh a bit more critically and and reminding ourselves that they, they they're not benign they can cause harm um or at best they're, they're completely useless uh, and this, uh, I, I guess, sort of refer, um, leads to the importance of being gentle on one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the idea of cheat days when people are on diets, and uh, and the fit fat movement, I think, has also been a useful corrective to uh, to uh, the mistaken belief that mm-hmm. uh, slim is healthy. Mm-hmm. Do you see other ways of pushing back against this, particularly in an, an Instagram dominated age? <laughs> um, I think that you know, I think it's really important that people understand that when it comes to our health that uh, our behaviors do matter and that's why the you know fit but fat you know however you feel about that that saying um, movement is important because regardless of your size um, and you know regardless of, of all the other things going on in your life any any movement you can make towards a healthier existence is good for you um, and you don't have to make it Instagram perfect as you mentioned it's a, a big driver these days um, you don't have to, to make it Instagram perfect to to have a benefit um, you know the the measures of health have have nothing to do with what you can take a picture for but I think around you know this is a real this is a public health issue in my mind um, you know it's it's about there's so many different facets to this you know you could really you know talk for for weeks and weeks and weeks on on how to tackle this problem you know I think that the the way we we allow messages to be put out there so you know regulation around um, around diet and you know fitness uh, for example they need to be in place you know that's goes without saying you know I think we need to to promote healthier role models um, so rather than promoting you know Instagram models or fashion models or you know whoever um, as our health and well-being role models we need to start looking for, for people who who actually embody health in a, a much more holistic 
holistic fashion um and i think one of the other you know if i had to pick something that was i think really important is to train particularly our kids um because they're so exposed to it but train our kids in media literacy um and social media literacy so they can pick apart these messages uh, and look at them a little bit more critically um understand what's being told to them you know and and hopefully well, you know the research does suggest that that will improve their ability to 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 sort of ignore those bad messages and and take away some of the good messages that they might see instead. Um, and you could certainly uh, you could certainly expand that to include adults because I don't think um, I don't think all of us all of the time are are hundred percent clear on on uh, what what we're reading and and why it is or isn't good for us. You've also been pretty active in uh, doing myth busting and calling out uh, celebrity chefs who uh, who write uh, uh, cookbooks that uh, that suggest that you can just substitute baby food for a uh, a dangerous broth, or mm. for uh, people who suggest that you can uh, cure cancer through diet. Uh, do you see that as an important role, not only for yourself but for other health professionals to uh, to to I guess. Uh, not just advocate good things, but mm-hmm. to take on the charlatans? Yeah, I think it's important. I don't think everyone needs to do it, has to do it, but I think for those people who have the ability to do so, I think it is important. You know, I've always, I've, up until recently, I have to say up until COVID, I was a little bit on the fence about um, how much regulation we should push on people, uh, whether it be in social media or in the mass media, um, who spread you know really dangerous misinformation you know to varying degrees Uh, and I was always sort of like well you know yeah we probably you know we shouldn't we shouldn't let those people have a voice Um, but the downside of that is that when you regulate these kinds of messages they do tend to get pushed underground where you can't regulate them it might strengthen their belief system you know that that there is a downside to that but particularly with COVID you know and some of the stuff that's been coming out is just mind-boggling um you know, I, I read, uh, I think it was an SBS the other day that, you know, what is it, one in eight Australians think that coronavirus was is being disseminated by 5G towers, which is just, mm. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's one, physically not possible, uh, and two, just completely untrue. Um, and, you know, so I did start to, I do th- actually think that there is a role to step in and, um, and regulate this. And certainly on social media platforms with COVID, you know, the WHO started working with uh, Google and Facebook book to uh, basically increase their regulation of the messages that are put out there and certainly I've seen a lot of examples where if you report something um, those platforms are onto it straight away um, you know that trying to counter that misinformation um, so I do think I do think that the, the time for sort of saying oh look we'll just be able to drown them out uh, is 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 past I think it is time to to strengthen regulation around these these kinds of people and the messages that they provide because they're not they're not harmless you know it's a short step from thinking that you know um, I don't know, blueberries will reduce your inflammation um, to have that message amplified by people who have a massive reach um, to thinking that, yeah, coronavirus is being distributed by 5G towers. Um, and the consequences of, of those actions are, are potentially very damaging for, for individuals, but for our society at large. Um, and, you know, I, I think that calling that information out and being able to either redirect people or being able to... Um, uh, counter that information is is really important and you know people who are 
absolutely um, resolute in their beliefs. They're not going to change their minds. That's not the people we're trying to target. There are a lot of people who are confused or scared or unsure um, who will hear that information and they're sort of sitting on the fence a little bit and if we counter that misinformation, it might help them to to stay away from those um, you know, more dangerous uh, messages that, that these people are putting out. Where do you advise people go on the internet for good health information? Is a site like WebMD good? Do you recommend that people spend time on Wikipedia? Uh, what are the uh, sort of sensible sources for people who want to uh, understand a particular condition or, or maybe just understand their bodies better? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, so in terms of you know websites, you know, uh, for example, just to use a really good example, um, the Heart Foundation. So when people want to know um, things about um, their hearts, I usually send them to the Heart foundation website because it's it's easy easily uh, understandable um, it's good quality information um, though, though so any you know you could have the same um, same kind of example for a whole bunch of different illnesses um, you know I know uh, the lung foundation has fantastic information about um, uh, you know lung cancer asthma associate all those kinds of things so they're, they're really good starting points um, mm. the the government health websites are also really good so whether you know for the moment at the moment obviously with COVID the Australian government health websites are good the WHO is good so basically websites that are coming from those sort of government central bodies I think are, are the most um, most reliable uh, consistent sources that we have available um, but that being said you know it, it, you, you might want to go further than that um, and I think that's where you can start to find um, start to find maybe conflicting or incomplete information and, and people will inevitably you know read a newspaper article and you know for example if you're reading something oh, I don't know in the Sydney Morning Herald or wherever you know they only have five or six hundred words to potentially explain a, a really complex topic that doesn't mean that what they've written is wrong it just means that it's it's incomplete it might not apply to you and so on and so forth and this is where I think learning media literacy is is a really important um, a really important aspect of uh, it's a really important life skill you know I think we should mm. Mm. definitely be teaching that so that you can look at that uh, look at an article, look at a website, look at a social media post and decide whether or not that's good quality information. You know, who's telling you, what are their qualifications, what are, you know, do they have any underlying conflicts of interest, you know, are they being paid to say something, you know, um, you know, what what sort of tools have they used in that, you know, creating a website, does it look beautiful or creating an Instagram post or, all those kinds of things need to be called into play because, you know, inevitably you are going to go beyond those, you know, one or two government or, you know, organisation websites to do some, to see something else and, and that's where things can potentially get a bit murky. Nikki, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, <laughs> listen to your parents. <laughs> Although I'd never tell them that. <laughs> Do, were they were they pushing back against uh, your kind of self doubt about not being smart enough that you mentioned at the outset? Um, not really. My parents are pretty. I wouldn't say they're hands off, but I think they they uh, they understand that um, there's an evolution to to these things, uh, and that if they are there to provide the support and advice when it's needed, you know, and this still goes now many many years down the track. Um, that you know, for my my younger brother. And I that will will we'll get there eventually um, with a with a with a good solid 
but gentle guidance. They're, they're good like that. <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, um, that the world is a meritocracy. That's a bit of a depressing one. I'm sorry. <laughs> when when did you change? Uh, when did your view on that change? Not until I started working as a doctor. Actually, I was a, I was a bit naive um, until until then. Until I was out in the real world, um, you know, uh, I was brought up thinking I could do anything I wanted, um, and that you know, if you just and this goes for everybody, if you just work hard enough, everything will work itself out. And that's you know true to an extent, but life actually isn't like that. Um, and, um, you know, for some people more than others. So, yeah, that was a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> was there a particular incident or uh, just a, a number, of, number no, of events? Just a number of things, you know, I think for me personally, but also I, I think one of the things I assume that really you know, hammered this point home is that, you know, working in the public healthcare system, you see a huge amount of inequality um, and, um, you know, it, the world isn't doesn't give everybody an equal playing field um, and I certainly you know f- me personally I've certainly found that in my career that you know there are times when you get a good break and there are times when you really really uh, don't get don't get what you think you deserve or you know you should get so I think I don't know if you can necessarily change that completely I hope you can but I think knowing that information is it's important it's important it was an important lesson for me to learn. When are you most happy? Uh, operating or in the water. Uh, I understand you uh, you prefer not to wear shoes if you can avoid it. <laughs> uh, is your ideal ideal operating r- routine if they would uh, they would let you operate without shoes? Oh, I would I would just not wear shoes. I mean, it's strange. I love shoes, but I also don't like wearing them. I think this is again this is a Perth thing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, exercise by far and away. And uh, play, I understand you play music as well. I do. Um, so I, I grew up in a pretty musical family. Um, so I sing and play the guitar, I play trumpet all through high school. Um, so that's, that's um, music in my life. It really soothes my soul when I, um, particularly if I'm having a really tough time, um, there's something really calming about music for me. So you just pull out the guitar? Yeah, and uh, annoy annoy the neighbours, annoy the cats with the <laughs> horrible sound. <laughs> Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I try not to call any pleasures guilty. Um, but if I had to say, you know, something that I, I guess is, you know, a bit... Oh, a bit silly, but I find really enjoyable is just watching uh, cooking videos on YouTube for some reason. Even mm. though I'm a terrible, I'm not a very good cook, but I find it really soothing and um, but completely inane thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's worse guilty pleasures. That's true. Uh, and uh, finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, my parents have uh, by a long shot they uh, I know it sounds it sounds a bit dorky but <laughs> um, you know they're they're good people and um, you know they certainly instilled in me the importance of, of doing the right thing um, no matter what um, and you know certainly that's gotten me in some trouble sometimes <laughs> you stick your head above water to point out that things aren't right but um, you know I don't know any other way and I'm grateful for that lesson that they taught me I love that moment of your dad just <laughs> saying, put, a, put aside all the constraints and just tell me what you would most like to do if yeah. you didn't have those, those constraints. Yeah. That seems like 
perfect perfect parenting just summed uh. up in that, <laughs> that little interaction. I won't tell um, him that it's perfect. He'll uh, he'll uh, he'll get a big head. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki Stan, thank you so much for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. Nikki's latest book is Pretty Unhealthy: Why Our Obsession with Looking Healthy Is Making Us Sick. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Manny Noakes, Munjed al and Deborah Rickwood. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.